Good morning. Good morning. I got an email yesterday from Andriana in uh, Aachen, Germany, who they listened to our class last week and wanted to tell each one of you hello and uh, happy Sabbath. Uh, from Germany. And uh, this is uh, for Zoran in uh, Germany because uh, I wouldn't do this for him on DVD in Germany. I will do it for him here. And that is Eins, zwei, drei, vier. <laughs> One, two, three, four. That's right. He wanted me to count on DVD in German and I wouldn't do it. My brother Bill is here with us today. You all have been praying for him for quite some time and he's well enough to come here today. All right, let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We pray that your spirit will be with us and that all of our uh, thoughts and uh, communications will honor you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number seven in our quarterly background characters in the Old Testament. And the lesson title this week is Abiathar the Priest. Uh, How many of you were familiar with Abiathar? Yeah, one or two people. Um, Abiathar, is that how it's pronounced? Some people might know by that name. Abiathar, okay. Abiathar, already. Um, and I wasn't that familiar with him, so I thought maybe it'd be helpful to just do a little background uh, history on Abiathar. Um, his name means father is preeminent, or father of abundance, or my father excels. That's what his name means. And he was the 10th high priest since Aaron, and he was the fourth in descent from Eli. And he was the descendant of Eli through Phinehas, Ahitub, and Ahimelech. And uh, Abiathar was the only son of Ahimelech who escaped the sword of Dog at the Edomites. And if you remember, um, the, David was in, being hunted by Saul, and he went to the uh, priest at Nob and got the showbread from the priests in order for him and his men to have something to eat. And um, this was reported to Saul, and Saul asked his men to kill the priests, but the priests wouldn't do it. Excuse me, the, the, the Israelite uh, soldiers wouldn't do it, so Dog the Edomite went and killed all the priests except for um, Abiathar. And he fled with the ephod. And remember, the ephod is the, the, the breastplate, basically, of the uh, high priest with the stones and the Urim and the Thummim. And uh, he fled with that to David, and he uh, was a priest for David, and he would cast lots with the Urim and Thummim to help David make decisions and so forth. This was occurring approximately 1000 BC, and at the world at that time, uh, approximately worldwide, there was about 50 million people in the world. Right now, there's over 6 billion people in the world. Uh, At at 1000 BC, the ancient Iranian people were just entering Persia. Uh, China was in the Zhao dynasty. The Phoenician alphabet was just being invented. The Chavez culture was uh, starting in the, in the Andes uh, in South America. Italy is just being inhabited by the Latin-speaking people from the Danube region. The Assyrians are starting to conquer their neighbors. And Greece was in its dark ages with the first Olympic Games that wouldn't be held for another 224 years in 776 B.C. And the Greeks wouldn't have coins for 400 more years in 600 B.C. And the Persians' uh, first invasion of Greece was in 546 B.C. And if you've heard of the the defeat of the Spartans at Thermopylae, that was uh, in 480 B.C., so another 520 years before that happens. So we're really kind of back in time here, 1000 B.C., when this is is gone going. Um, The Amalekites uh, were raiding 
the Israelites at this time. And Abiathar was uh, serving as priest of David at this time. And anybody remember where the Amalekites come from? The Amalekites come from from the the descendants of Amalek, who um, was one of the sons of Esau. So he's one of the sons of Esau. And the Edomites... The Edomites are sons of Esau, or Edom. Edom is another name for Esau. So we have the Edomites, the sons of Esau, and the Amalekites, the descendants of Esau, who are making war with Israel. And the Amalekites were also, um, were also allies with um, the Ammonites, Moabites, Ishmaelites, and Midianites. We've heard of all these. You know where the Ammonites and Moabites come from? Right. Lots after the uh, after he left, his two daughters got him drunk, and the oldest daughter had a son from their dad named Moab, and we get the Moabites, and the youngest daughter had a son from dad named Am- Ammon, uh, the Ammonites, and and then of course the Ishmaelites come from Ishmael, and the Midianites come from Abraham. Abraham's uh, uh, concubine um, Keturah, and that's where the Midianites come from. So, have you ever heard of Family Feud? <laughs> okay, this is what's going on. This is a this is literally a Family Feud. These are all descendants of Abraham through one or another of his descendants, and they're all fighting back and forth with each other. But notice, isn't it interesting? And I I, I looked at this. We have the Edomites, we have the Amalekites, we have the Ammonites, we have the Moabites, we have the Ishmaelites, we have the Midianites. They're not fighting with each other. They're all joined together fighting against Israel. Isn't that interesting? I mean, they, if it's family, if you, why aren't they? Why are they all joined together against Israel? Yes. It's the same today. Yes, same today. They're still all against Israel and and against Christians too, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, through the rebellion. Um, of Absalom. You remember after David's sin and David eventually becomes king. Uh, he has a sin with um, Bathsheba, murders Uriah. There's a rebellion in, in the kingdom. Um, the, uh, the priest we're talking about today, um, Abiathar, remained loyal to King David through this rebellion. He and the other uh, priest, uh, Zadok or Zadok, um, were going to remove the ark from the um, from the temple when Absalom's army was approaching Jerusalem, but David instructed them to stay behind and be his spies in the city and uh, report to David what was going on under Absalom's rebellion, which there's a lot of duplicity going on. They were reporting to their uh, uh, agents who were then leaving the city, and there were people spying on those spies reporting back to Absalom, and there's this whole intrigue thing going on at that time. Um, Near the end of David's reign, uh, Abiathar instead of favoring Solomon with the younger son of David, uh, favored uh, Adonijah, which was the older son, and decided uh, to side with him and support uh, him for the throne. And uh, because of this, uh, he was uh, deposed as high priest and banished to his home. He wasn't executed because he had carried the ark and had been with David during David's hard time. So Solomon didn't have him executed. Um, there's uh, some speculation that he might have uh, uh, favored uh, Adonijah over uh, Solomon because um, uh, Abiathar was the son of Aaron's, uh, was a descendant of Aaron's youngest son, whereas Zadok was uh, was a descendant of Aaron's older son, Eliezer, whereas um, Abiathar was the descendant of Ithamar. So maybe that uh, maybe that's uh, why he wanted to, to uh, side in the way he did. Who knows? Anyway. 
Any thoughts about the history of, of how this played out and the intrigue and, and the politics? I mean, did you notice there's politics going on there? Priests were playing politics, siding with different people for political power. Uh, that doesn't happen today, does it? No politics in the church. No. Okay. Sabbath lesson. Somebody read for us. With that history in mind, let's go through our lesson. Somebody read for us the memory text. Sabbath lesson. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. So who, do you th- who is this text referring to as being a, a royal priesthood? Us. Okay, us. So how are you and I priests? Could we be a ministry of God's character? Administering God's character. Okay. I, I, I like that. What, what does it mean to be a priest? Are we allowed to have priestesses? Ooh. Hmm. Um, are we priests only in our homes, or are we priests of God in the community and in the church? Everywhere. Does one have to go to seminary to be a priest of God? Does one have to be ordained by the church to be a priest of God? So, what's the difference then? Advantages. Advantages? Of having additional time for study. Additional time for study. You mean like the priesthood in Christ's day? They had advantages. They did. Mm -hmm. And, and, And Christ told them that when they converted someone... And, and Paul said that, you know, what's, what's the purpose or what's the advantage? He says every advantage. Oh, no, he didn't say every advantage of going to seminary. He said every advantage of being a Jew. But not, not of studying in their seminaries. Ellen White actually said that Christ wouldn't study in their seminaries because they were so perverted by the time he came along that it would have, uh, it would have clouded his uh, developing mind, so he studied with his mother at home. Is there a difference between the priesthood of the Old Testament and what we are called to fulfill today? What what would be the difference? What was their what was their function? Did God in Old Testament times design that there should be elite an elite group of people who served as priests and everyone else were non priests? Was that his design? I see some heads nodding yes and some heads nodding no. Well, let's look at Exodus nineteen five and six. Exodus nineteen five and six. And this is the Lord speaking. Through Moses. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Hmm. So, were there just supposed to be the Levitical priesthood, or was the whole nation to be a nation of priests? How do we understand that? Yes. Weren't the Levitical priests, you talk about like being a play acting kind of thing, so they were like demonstrating what the bigger reality of all of us should be in a world. Excellent. Perfectly. Well said. The Levitical priesthood was simply acting out in, a, in, an, in an enacted theatrical way um, what the whole group of Israel were to be doing for the world, what we now are to be doing for the world. So... Is, is that, in fact, true today? Should we, in fact, um, be priests in reality, or are we priests only in, in a the- theatrical way? In reality. 
Yeah, what about the what about the clergy? Are the clergy today uh, doing theater, or are they priests in real ways? <laughs> because the because the clergy in their day were really enacting out the ceremonial system, which had, as the New Testament tells us, no benefit whatever to salvation. The blood of goats and, and, and bulls had no benefit, but it was a symbolic acting out that that was to be translated into a reality of living. So what were the duties of the priests? What were their duties? Because we want to translate the enactment, the Old Testament priesthood duties, let's translate that into real modern application. So what were the duties of the priest? Intercession? Okay. With whom? About what? For what purpose? I mean, if we're serving as a priesthood, do we have an intercessory role? If so, with whom, for what, for what purpose? So how do we understand the intercession of the priest? I look at it like, like it would have been with Jesus when he was on the earth, where he was working to reconcile people back to the truth about God. And that would be demonstrating also what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, is that what the priestly work was to do, to, to bring the people back to God? So are they interceding to God to get God to be favorable, or are they God's representatives to bring the people back to God? Do we have a role to play to bring people to God? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so we're interceding. Remember, what the fa- remember Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. What's he sending us for? Or Paul says, um, uh, blessed are the feet of those who carry the gospel, right? What are we carrying the gospel message for? What's the purpose? To help to see, to open the minds and hearts of the truth about God. Excellent. So let's look at the reality in the lesson book. The Old Testament priest wore white robes. What are we to wear? What's analogous? What's the translation of that? We're to have the character of Christ that we go out in. So, so we don't go out in the purity of a, of a piece of clothing. We go out with a purity of heart and mind, a heart that loves others more than self. Yeah, excellent. They ministered the blood of the sacrificial animal around the sanctuary. What, how does that translate into what we do? What's the blood represent? Life of Christ. Life of Christ. Excellent. How do we minister that? And the, Christ said, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's, it's the life of Christ, the truth about God, the character of God, the love of God. This is what's represented in the blood. And the priest took that and would take it all through the sanctuary and put it places and so forth. How do we take the, the life of Christ as priests? What do we do with it? Where do we take it? Yes. In a similar manner, the priest also ate of the flesh. And Christ said, if you don't drink my blood, you drink and eat my flesh. You know, you partake of me, partake of my life. And then we are then an example to those around us of, of his life. So we, we take it in our, in our daily lives. In the way we act, the way we, we behave, the way we treat others, when we minister. As you do it unto the least of these, you do it unto me. Is this how we take the blood of Christ? And we, we apply it into the sanctuary or the temple of our friends, our family, our strangers, the, in, into their most holy place right up here. 
as we teach them and, and share with them these truths. Oh, okay. How about the, the, the showbread? Every Sabbath, the priests would go into the holy place and eat the showbread every Sabbath. How, how does that translate to us today? What's the showbread represent? Jesus said the, about the bread of heaven. Who's the bread of heaven? Jesus. Jesus. He says, I'm the bread of heaven. And every Sabbath, the, the priests come together and eat 12 loaves. 12 loaves represent the bread of the word of God, the, both the living and written word. I'm the word. The word was made flesh, right? So it represents Christ. They're eating it on Sabbath in the holy place. What's that represent? Doesn't it represent us gathering together on Sabbath to partake of Christ in, in our study of him, in ingesting of his word, uh, in partaking of his character as we study together, priests together, encouraging, supporting. So what we're doing here right now is, is, is ingesting the bread of life every Sabbath. Isn't that what we're doing? How about this one? People presented themselves to the priests for examination to determine cleanliness to be in the community. How does that translate? Didn't they? When Christ healed the leper, what did he tell them? Go to the priest. Get examined. Get declared cleansed. Offer the proper sacrifice. So how does that translate to us today? Search me and know me. They have a clean heart. Do people ever come to us with struggles, with battles in life? with spiritual difficulties, with guilt, with shame, with, with sins that they're struggling to overcome in life? Do they ever come to us with those things? Do, are we to minister God's grace to them? Are we to counsel? Are we to encourage? Are we to, to point them to Jesus? Are we to show loving acceptance and grace in their difficulties? Are we? Yes. This is what we're to do to help them uh, overcome the difficulties in their life so they can be clean through Christ's grace in their life. Is this not... Part of the ministry of a priest? Yeah. Do we do that as priests of God today? Or do we leave that to the psychiatrist? Or <laughs> <laughs> your job security. Or your job security. <laughs> the priests would carry the ark into battle. Would they not? Would the priests carry the ark into battle? How does that translate to us today? What kind of battle are we engaged in? What kind of warfare do we fight? <laughs> Though we live in the world, we don't wage wars the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So we are in a, we're in a war, aren't we? So how does carrying the ark translate in, in, for us as priests? What do we carry into spiritual warfare? What do we carry? What was in the ark? The Ten Commandments. So do we carry, and, and, and what's the new covenant? I will write my law where? In the heart. So when we go into spiritual warfare, are we to go into spiritual warfare with the law of God written in our hearts? That we have died to self. We've been renewed. We love others more than self. Are we to go with the word that we have ingested? It was mentioned earlier. We, we partake of Christ. We eat the flesh. Are we to have that into our, into our memory banks, our knowledge? We know about God. We know about the scriptures. We know the truth of his, of, of his kingdom. We, are we to take that knowledge into warfare? The knowledge of God. Are we to, um, uh, and, and the, the dead rod that, that budded? Okay, this is the, the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Are we to take a righteous life, a righteous character into spiritual warfare? 
yeah, this is how we carry the ark into warfare. Seems to me. Other thoughts about that. Isn't it kind of cool? So uh, do we think, do you often think of yourself as a priest of God? I'm a priest and I am out as a priest in spiritual warfare, ministering the kingdom of God to free other people who are being held captive. Is that how you think of your day-to-day activities? Well, give it a try. Give it a try this next week. Think during the next week, hey, I'm a priest. Might it help if we were to get some priestly vestments to wear? (laughs) Monday's lesson, fourth paragraph. Last sentence of that paragraph, it states, the authors of Hebrews, that Jesus can be our high priest because he fully can empathize with us. Notice that last sentence, and it references Hebrews 2.17. And then the question in Friday's lesson from question number two says the following. Dwell more on the idea of how Jesus, in his humanity, is able to sympathize with us in our struggles. So, I want a little discussion. What does this mean about Jesus being able to empathize with us because he became human? He can be our high priest because he can empathize with us, um, that he has the capacity to sympathize with us. Some questions along these lines. Can the Father be our high priest? Why or why not can the Father be the high priest? Is the Father, and then along these lines, what are the reasons that they're, they're ascribing Christ as our high priest? Because he can empathize with us and he can sympathize with us. That's what they say. Have you heard this idea before? Christ is faithful, high priest, because he has been tempted in all manner like we are and, and knows our struggles and so forth. Um, does that mean that the Father is less empathetic and sympathetic and is less aware Do you know that this is often taught? That Christ, as our empathizing high priest in heaven, is able to communicate to the Father how difficult it is for us in our struggles and sins and and stuff because he as a human experienced those things and and has been tempted in every manner just like we are yet without sin. And so um, he's now able to have a greater insight into our human difficulties and struggles and communicates for us as our high priest in heaven to the Father. What do you think about that idea? This is how I often heard those ideas as too. She says, so are we suggesting God didn't have all knowledge? And, and yes. Everything that Jesus did, he did according to the Father's will while he was on earth. God was with him every step of the way. Yeah. If that's the case, then why did Christ even have to come? If God experienced all that without, I mean, in other words, Christ was just experiencing that only the wife. I know that we're, I know that we're uh, staying in the whole universe to look at and all that. But if we have the knowledge that God knew all these things ahead of time, then why did Christ even have to come to do all this? Okay, uh, wave in the back. It was because we needed to see the example. Mm. It wasn't for him in any way, shape, or form. Ah. Ah. So, so if Christ, she's suggesting, if Christ hadn't have come as a human, we would not have known that God really can appreciate our. Have you ever had a, a, a painful experience in life, a loss of a loved one or something, uh, a child who has uh, gotten a difficulty, and someone comes to you who has not had such an experience and says, "I, I know how you feel." Do we believe that person when they say, "I know how you feel," if they've never been any th- through anything like that? So. Is it possible that that it's not that God didn't actually know, but that we wouldn't have believed that he knew? Is that possible? So, and if you read in Desire of Ages, I think it's page 29, um, it talks about um, Christ coming and becoming incarnate. 
and then uh, taking this human temple upon himself. And she uses the words, um, because of this, we might know that he can empathize with our griefs and experiences. Mm-hmm. That we might know. He did this that we might know that he can empathize. Those are the words she uses there. Um, is there another hand over here? Yes. I was just going to say that the traditional view has, just has it backwards. You know, it has it changing God and really it's, it's changing us. It helps us relate to him I like what you're saying very much. The traditional view has, has somehow the intercessory role, mediatory role, high priestly role of Christ working somehow in the Father, you know, pleading to him his blood, communicating to him our concerns. Somehow his work is that direction. Whereas the reality is he is the Father's representative, ambassador, envoy, the medium through which the Father achieves his goals for humanity. Does that make sense? Yes. And, oh, here, somebody. Had to, yes. Perhaps God himself is tempted to not let his son come as a sacrifice. When Jesus was pleading on Calvary, he might have been tempted at that point to withdraw that sacrifice. Well, that's an interesting question. I I don't know that I'm comfortable with the word temptation because it says in James 1 that God cannot be tempted. Um, But I do think it was a challenge with God um, to surrender his son um, because of the, um, the love that he had for his son. But I don't know that I would call it temptation in that sense. But I understand what you mean. Yeah. Um, let's look at the actual text in Hebrews and see if we can get any light from that. Starting in verse 14, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Let's read these together. Did you have a comment, Wendell? Well, I think the temptation of who was there No, you, I want to go. No, I want to go. Right. Yes. As, as I, I like that very much, Wendell. You want to expand on this more? Well, I just, I just think that, that both of them were struggling over... You know, the love for us, the love for their created beings, and that they would each want to come. And then, okay, who did it make more sense for the come? The person who was representing, you know, who would the, the struggle was against by, by the devil, or, you know, so both wanted to come. So as a parent, if in a similar situation where either you or your son has to go and, 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 and sacrifice themselves in order to achieve this, uh, this, this goal that you, you have together set, you, you would rather go and have your son stay behind. Is, is that true as a dad? Right. Yeah. And your son might say, no, dad, you stay. I'm going to go. And so there could be this tension, not about whether we'll save or not save, but which one of us is going to go do the work. Yeah, I like that idea. Yes. If, if he had to come down in order to gain that knowledge, that experience, and that faith, if he chose to do that viewpoint, would that be a little bit like earning his own salvation or something for us, or a reflection of Doesn't that take away from his divinity as far as being the God alone? Well, I, I, I agree with you completely. If he had to come to earth to learn something he didn't otherwise already know, then he is an omniscient, is he? No. No. So we have to understand it differently than a, a educational experience for the Godhead. Um, they didn't have to go to school to figure this out. Let's, let's look at the text and see what the text tells us. Okay? Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. And this is out of the um, New American Standard Bible. And uh, follow along in your versions because when we get to verse 17, I'm, I want to hear verse 17 from more than one version. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, 
He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. So, thoughts about this passage. Do you see where somebody could get the idea because he was being tempted, he's now able to come to aid of those who are being tempted? They could get this idea, okay, well, well, how is that helping? Well, he's able to empathize. He's able to be a merciful and faithful high priest. He's able to understand our our, our difficulties and struggles and, and therefore he's able to assist us. They could get this idea from that. I don't think it's actually quite relevant. I think there's a better idea from the passage. So let's start with verse 14. And the first thing it tells us that he took flesh and blood for the purpose of doing what? In verse 14. Destroying him who holds the power of death or rendering powerless him who holds the power of death that is the devil. How do we understand that aspect? The devil holds the power of death. What is that power? Exactly. You guys have nailed it. It's lies, deception. Why? John 17.3 tells us what life eternal is. Eternal life is knowing God. Okay, let's do the math. If eternal life is knowing God, then eternal death is not knowing God. So Satan's power is the lies that he tells about God that we believe that keep us from knowing him. So step one of Jesus' mission in in 2.14 is he's going to render him powerless. How do you render render a liar powerless? By a revelation of truth. Truth destroys lies. And so Christ fully revealed the Father. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. So once Christ finishes his mission, all the lies that Satan has told about the Godhead are destroyed. Satan has no power anymore. He's powerless. As long as we're willing to love the truth. You'll know the truth. Truth will set you free. So first thing he did, he came to reveal the truth uh, for our need. Did, Did the Father in heaven need Christ to come and fulfill a mission on earth? So the Father would have truth. No, who needed truth? We did, and also the unfallen beings in heaven needed some clarity too. It says in Colossians 1.18 that all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. So those heavenly beings, while they didn't rebel, had questions that that were put to rest. All doubts were settled in heaven uh, when Christ finished his work at the cross. So uh, verse... um, the next, the next verse, it says he came to free mankind. To free mankind is what it says. Um, who were held, held in slavery. What is it that holds us? What is it that holds us in bondage that we need freedom from? Fear, okay. Lies that we believe. And what else? How about our own sinful nature? Are you held in bondage by your own sinful nature? Yes. And so we've already, we, we've already revealed that, that he's brought the truth to destroy the lies to set us free. He says in Romans 5.5 5, that when we trust him, because we've seen the truth, the lies have been destroyed. I trust you. You are not like I've always thought. God, I trust you. Open the heart, says Romans 5. If he pours his love into our hearts, perfect love casts out all fear. Frees us from fear. Frees us from fear. And what about our carnal nature? How do we get freed from that? Well, let's keep reading. Because we have to be freed from that too, don't we? We have to be freed from that, yes. And so the next, it says he came to help humans. He came to help humans with what? Well, obviously with the knowledge of God. He came to bring us that knowledge. That's true. It says in 1 John 3, 8, that by his death, he destroyed the devil's work. 
the devil's work. What was the devil's work? What was the devil working to do? Destroy the image of God in us. Yes. It's, Exactly. It says, as soon as man was created, Ellen White says that Satan began and labored to destroy the image of God in man and to put Satan's image where God should be. And we get this out of, uh, and we get this throughout Scripture when it talks about the man of sin and in First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians, the man of sin who sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What is that? Or we talk about um, the people becoming the synagogue of Satan. What does it mean to be the synagogue of Satan rather than the temple of the Holy Spirit? He was talking about our minds, our characters, indwelled by the Spirit. The, the, the law is written on the heart and mind. We become a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. The image of God is restored within us. Or we accept the lies of Satan, reject the truth about God. We have the satanic mold put in. We become a synagogue of Satan. So Christ came to reverse what Satan had been doing to the human race. How did he do that? Could God reverse what was happening in the hearts and minds of mankind by declarations from heaven? No. No. How did it have to be done? Demonstrated or achieved? Think this through. Christ, when was the first time Christ came to earth as a man that, that's recorded? When he came to Abraham. He came in the form of a man, Remember? And he ate the venison. I imagine coming from the heavenly courts and eating heavenly foods. He sat there and waited for Abraham to cook some venison. I imagine that was a tasty meal for him. What do you think? <laughs> you think he might have wanted to gag? Uh, what would you guys do if you were at someone's home, not an Adventist, and they uh, put, uh, uh, cook you a pork, pork loin? Hmm. Would it be tasty? Mm, would you choke on it? You think that would be a, a greater condescension than what Christ did when he ate the, the venison from heaven? What do you think? Which is a greater condescension? I think Christ probably was, was a little more, you know, <clears throat> having to hold his nose and eat that venison. What do you think? Anyway, uh, the point is, he came as a man back to Abraham in the form of a man. Why didn't he come to earth to achieve his mission as our savior as a man like that, why, why was that not, a, not good enough? If he would have come, appeared as an adult male uh, at age, you know, uh, 30 years of age, starts his ministry, his public ministry right there like he did to Abraham, why would that not have been good enough to save us? Ah, okay, we're there. You had a comment, Wendell? He became perfect. Ah, yes. It says, it says in Hebrews 5.8, right? Once he became perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Once he became perfect. Now, that's a little troubling because wasn't he always perfect? Ah, okay. So, right. See, the, some of the language, some of the, some of the text will, will take that, that Greek and translate it perfect. Others will translate it mature. So he was born sinless. But was he as a human, did Jesus Christ as a human infant in Mary's arms have a mature, solidified, perfect character? No, he didn't. Was there ever a human being before Christ that had perfect character? No. No. Adam, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve had the capacity to develop a perfect character. They, they could have done it with their own strength. They had no internal carnal nature to tempt them. They could have done it individually and solely alone. But 
They chose not to. It's fascinating how God made us. God made us with the capacity to transform or change ourselves based on the choices we make and the things we believe. We actually are changed. Literally, not just in the way we think, but physiologically, we experience change when we change our belief systems. Adam and Eve chose to believe lies and to change them. And they never solidified a character. If they would have chose the truth and said no to Satan, they would have developed a perfect character and they would have been secure eternally. So what is the ceiling that Ellen White talks about and the scriptures talk about? Being so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that we cannot be moved. This is the, this is the ceiling. Yes? Well, that's what I was going to say, is that perfection is being totally and completely 100% convinced that God is the truth and that we want to follow him. Is that right, maturity? Is yeah. a complete convincing of the truth and believing it? Yeah, I, I, think, I think, as I understand the ceiling, settling the truth intellectually and spiritually, uh, the intellectual settling is that you are so convinced of the truth, nothing will ever change your mind about it. So, and I give this example, uh, those of us in this room, I think most of us are sealed on the issue of smoking. Is there any amount of tobacco company advertisements and propaganda that will change your mind about the dangers of smoking that you'll think it's now healthy? Do you think you can be persuaded that that cigarette smoking will will give you greater lung and and vascular health? Or are you settled on that issue intellectually? Okay, I have many patients uh, who are intellectually settled, and they know this damage, but they continue to smoke. So they're intellectually sealed, but they're not spiritually sealed. Spiritually sealed is when we actually apply it to our life and live it. Okay, and so we're both intellectually sealed on smoking, and we're spiritually sealed in that we apply it to our life, and nothing's going to change our mind. We're not going to be duped into starting that behavior. So that's what it means, I think, to be sealed. Now, I have patients who are... Sealed intellectually, but not spiritually. And I have some patients who are not sealed either. They actually think smoking helps their lungs. So they're not either sealed in any way. They smoke because they think they get better breathing. Okay? Yes? They're sealed in the opposite direction. Ah. So no doubt evidence you present will change their mind. That's right. And ultimately, as we talk about the shaking time at the end of time, people are being so settled into the truth about God, both intellectually and spiritually, that they cannot be moved, or they're being so settled into the lies about God, both intellectually and spiritually, that they cannot be moved. And that's what's happening in the great shaking. And when, and when uh, uh, Christ returns, and the, uh, at the end of the thousand years, with all the wicked and the wicked, when all the righteous and all the wicked dead are raised, the, the gates of the New Jerusalem are open period of time goes by while they're making weapons of warfare, no one comes in the city. Why? Because God has angels holding the gates closed? No, the gates are open. Because they're so settled into the lie that no amount of truth will have any impact on them. And the analogy I give on that is, imagine that uh, when, when David Koresh was still alive and, and they had their compound down in Waco and, uh, and, that, and the, uh, the ATF and the FBI had them surrounded and you had a loved one, a brother or sister, inside the compound with David Koresh. And you went down there to plead with your brother or sister, and they're on the inside telling you how it's perfect in here, how he's the Messiah, come on in. Are you going in? No. That's how the people outside the city will view us inside the city. They're so subtle in the lie. No amount of truth will ever persuade them. So another hand somewhere. Okay, so let's go on with our text. So, so he helps us humans with, the, he developed the character, a perfect character, re, perfectly restored the image of God in, in humanity through his own journey and experience that we could not do. We couldn't achieve this. And then 
The last uh, thing here, it says, depending on your version, in verse 17, some versions say propitiate, some versions say atone, some versions say forgive sin. So propitiate sin, atone sin, forgive sin. And what does that mean? How does, he, how, does, how does he help us with that? Now, there's certain versions that see this as very forensic and legal and penal. He had to pay that penalty to somebody. We won't say God anymore because that makes it look out really bad. So we'll say the law. He paid it to the law. What's the law transcript? Of? Oh, the character of God. <laughs> Yeah, this happens all the time. When you talk to certain theologians, you'll say, he paid it to God? No, no, he didn't pay it to God. Who did he pay it to? The law. And where's the law originate? Well, in the heart of God. Do you see the circular reasoning there? It's craziness. Yes, I saw a hand somewhere. Yes. God's word translation, verse 17. Therefore, he became like his brothers and sisters, so he could be merciful. He became like them so that he could serve as faithful chief priest in God's presence and make peace with God for their sins. Make, oh, that's, you know, that's actually a little nicer, isn't it? If we understand what that means, make peace with God. Not peace with God, but peace, you know, okay? Let's see if we, let's see if we can walk this through. Let's see if, um, this comes out of uh, Thought Amount of Blessings, page 114. Think this idea of forgiveness of sins. See if this is somehow wor- uh, applies to what Christ as our high priest, what Christ has done in his humanity for us. It says, but the forgiveness, forgiveness has a broader meaning than many suppose. When God gives the promise that he will abundantly pardon, he adds as if the meaning of that promise exceeded all that we could comprehend. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Now notice what kind of thoughts we get here. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. It is the outflow of redeeming love. You notice the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. David had the true conception of forgiveness when he prayed, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew the right spirit within me. And again, he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. So did Christ come in order to remove from us sinfulness, rebelliousness, selfishness, to remove it from our characters so that we are no longer, it's no longer I, the sinful, selfish me that lives, but it is a loving, other-centered Christ that lives within me. Is this why he came? Yes. It's really cool. So this is how he's a, so when we think about this then, why is Christ our high priest and the father is not our high priest? What does Christ possess that the Father does not possess? Does the Father, in his infinite perfection, possess a human nature? Does Christ? And does Christ possess a perfected human nature? And is that what we need? That's why Christ is our high priest. He actually has the remedy to our condition. And thus, when he was made perfect, as it says in Hebrews 5, 9, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Or as Desire of Ages 762 says, that the law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. Notice the, the, the law does not require a death penalty or a legal payment. It's not what it requires. It requires a righteous life, a perfect character. But Christ 
coming to earth as man, lived a holy life, and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. And so when we trust him, we actually become indwelled with his spirit. And as the new covenant says, it writes his law in our hearts and minds. The law is a transcript of his character. So we get the character of Christ reproduced within us. Or we get the mind of Christ. Or the heart is circumcised by the spirit. We get, uh, it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. All these metaphors of scripture are talking about a renewal and regenerating process that our faithful high priest has achieved for us and then works in us through the spirit. Questions about this? Yes. The consequence of sin is death. Yes. Why? Well, I don't know why, but... But we need to know why. Let's not, let's not, let's not stop. But the consequences, the consequences of the wages of sin is death. The question is why? There's, there's two options, really. It's only two. It, it, one, because the, the sin takes us out of harmony with the very design for life that God made, and it's incompatible with life. Sin is in, like tying a plastic bag over your head, violates the law of respiration, and it's incompatible with life. That's option one. We die because sin takes us out of harmony with the basis of life. Or two, we die because God executes and kills. There's only two options here. Sin, sin destroys or God destroys? Which is, sin destroys or God destroys? I'm going to tell you, it's not traditional Christianity. Traditional, traditional Christianity has God as the destroyer. And it's part of Satan's infection to Christian thought. And it's one of the reasons why Christ hasn't yet come. Because the gospel, the kingdom of love, hasn't yet gone to the world. When the gospel of the kingdom goes to the world, then the end will come. But instead, we've taken this other thing that we have to be afraid of God who's trying to kill us. No, we need to be afraid of sin, which if unremedied will destroy us, and God is trying to save us. But go on with your, your comment. Well, I mean, I still, it's not clear in my mind if the consequence of sin is death, and we are not going to die, doesn't someone else need to take our place? Um, if the consequences of, um, let's see... Um, well, first off, why, why would someone else need to take your place? Why? For what purpose? Um, <laughs> the Lord, no. So this, I mean, this goes back to the way you see death. If you see death as a legal inaction that God has to do in order for, the, for justice to be served, then somebody has to do that if it's a legal payment. In the Old Testament, each time they sin, they have to kill a lamb. So it just seems like you have to get someone to die for you. What was the lesson being taught there? First off, who killed the sacrificial animal? The representative of God, the priest, or the sinner? Okay, so if we take the lesson, then what is it that's killing the animal? God or the God's representative or sin from the sinner? Okay, so it's not, so, so we take the lesson even from the Old Testament, and what is the lesson? If we talked in here before about what's God's law? And, and how do we, and, and how would you define the law of love? The law, the law of love is the law of giving. Love seeks not itself. Love seeks not its own. Love is other-centered, beneficent. It's, it's, it's self-sacrificial. It's the opposite of selfishness. It's selflessness. This is the law of love. This is God's nature, his character. Would it not make sense to you that God, being other-centered and loving, that uh, when the Godhead... Father, Son, and Spirit began to create whatever it is they're going to create in the universe, would it not make sense that they would actually design and build and create the universe in harmony with their own nature? Okay? So the law of the universe is the law of other-centered love and giving and beneficence. And we see that as an example I gave. We give away carbon dioxide to the plants and they give back oxygen to us. Part of the design of how we're built. It brings life. If you break the law, I'm going to break it, tie a plastic bag over my head, quit breathing, 
hoard my, keep my carbon dioxide, make, make, become selfish and, 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 and hoard it. Well, then I die because I'm transgressing the law. I'm outside of the law that life is built upon. This is one way to see it. This is how I think it makes most sense. And we could spend quite a bit of time here this morning going through example, example, example out of nature where this law is true. It's the design template for life. But the way it's traditionally taught, we have taken human ideas and human, and human governments and we have projected that back into heaven. And, and how we make laws is we legislate them or we enact them. And then once we legislate or enact a law, in order to enforce a law, we have to uh, ascribe certain judicial penalties. And then we have to have trials to examine whether someone's guilty or someone's innocent. And then we have to have a proper implementation of the penalty. And someone has to execute that. And we can't let anyone off unless someone pays the penalty. So we have to have a fine being paid in some way. And so we have taken this whole human system and we've projected it onto God in heaven. And we claim that that's how God runs this universe. I don't think there's any, any uh, inspired reality to that. I think that's a distortion. The reality is that Christ had to come in order to do what? Well, after mankind's end, we are no longer, we don't operate in harmony with the law. We are not loving and selfless in nature anymore. It says in, in Romans and in other places that the human mind is naturally at enmity against God's law. Meaning we're not loving, but we're selfish. So our natural state is one of being terminal. We're dead in trespass and sin, it says in Scripture. We're already dead. We're in a terminal condition. Christ came in order to reverse that, to not only reveal the truth about God, but to actually put back in the human being, the species known as human, God's law of love. The only way to do that was for it to be achieved in, inside a human being. And so in Christ Jesus, we have this unique blend of the perfect character of God with the capacity to experience temptation like we are. How did that happen? How did it happen that Christ could experience both? Right. Uh, Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground, perfect and sinless. Eve taken from his side. Did Christ come into the world either one of those ways? No. No. You and I have a sinful mom and sinful dad. Did Christ have a sinful mom and sinful dad? No. His sinful mom, Galatians 4.4, born of a woman under the law. But his father was the Holy Spirit. So in Christ Jesus, we have this unique blend where he has the capacity to experience temptation just like we do. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. Uh, yet he was without sin. And in uh, James chapter 1, it says that uh, we are tempted by our own evil desires. How many of you have temptation from internal to yourself to act in self-interest? Christ was able to experience temptation like this, but in his human brain, he was able to, at every turn, love God and love others more. Thus, he said no to these temptations and developed a perfect human character. When you understand the law of love, when the sinner confessed sin on the head of the lamb, the sinner cuts what? The circulation. The life is in the blood and it circles. That's what it does. And this is the law of love. And God is teaching us in object lesson form that the law of the universe is the law of never-ending giving, which is what the blood is doing. It just circles and circles and circles and circles. If you break the circle... So as soon as the sinner confesses sins on the head of the lamb, the sinner cuts the circulation, teaching us that sin severs the law upon which life is built to operate. And what happens? Death happens. So death is incompatible. I mean, sin is incompatible with the way God designed life in the universe to run. And so, so yes, this was what they were trying to teach them in the Old Testament service. It was never that somebody has to pay a death penalty for me. It's that we have to be in perfect harmony with God's law. Just like we read here, the law requires righteousness, a perfect life. 
This we don't have to give, but Christ came in the form of man, developed the perfect character, and this he offers as a free gift to all who accept them. And the only way to do that was to destroy within humanity this very infection that leads us to act in self-interest. And you see this in Gethsemane, when Christ, um, in Gethsemane, was Christ tempted with powerful human emotions? Yes or no? Yes. And did his human emotions tempt him to save himself? This is the core of all sin, self-centeredness. But every time the temptation came, he said, no, no one can take my life. I will give it freely. Why did he have to die then? If at any point along death's approach, was Christ on the cross a helpless thief like the two thieves? That once they put him on the cross, he was powerless. Or did he retain the capacity to stop at any time he wanted? So what happens if at some point along the approach to death, he exercises his power to stop it from taking him? Who does he save? Self. The only way to destroy selfishness is to give himself completely and unreservedly in love. And that's what he did. And he did this not through the exercise of divine power that he has, uh, because he denied himself access to that. He did this through the exercise of his, of his human brain in trust with his father. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Recognize. It's very important. Many people think when they look at Christ that he had an advantage because he had a divine nature that strengthened him. He did not. He fell down to die in Gethsemane, except an angel came external to himself to revive him. And so he did this as a human being with like passions as you and I. It's phenomenal. Spend time meditating. Always says we should spend a, a thoughtful hour every day meditating on this. Yes. And I had a couple of the points I wanted to make in the lesson. I guess we're not going to get there. Go ahead. A couple of cans, Scott. Yeah. Um... That's, I agree with what you said, but I think the, way, the reason it's uh, very confusing is because we've always been taught that the, the sanctuary ceremony in the Old Testament was foretelling what was going to happen and Christ would come to be our sacrifice. But really, that's not correct with your interpretation. He did come and be our sacrifice. He did. Well, there's no question. The lesson being taught with the Old Testament sanctuary was not really telling what was going to happen. In other words, the, the, the sinner killing the sacrifice who was it that who, happened when Christ came. Who was it that, that shed Christ's blood? Was it God or was it human beings, sinful human beings? Who was it that sheds the blood of the sacrificial lamb? Was it God or was it sinful human beings? Yeah. It tells it exactly. And, and, and Isaiah chapter 53 tells us that we would misunderstand. Isaiah 53 verse 4, it says that, um, somebody look that up real quick and read it for us. Isaiah 53 4. Isaiah 53 4. He was stricken, smitten of God. But Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Notice the prophecy of Isaiah that he would come carry our condition, our sinfulness, our terminal state. He would carry it to the cross in order to destroy the terminal state, overcome, purify mankind, cleanse this race, perfect us back into righteousness. He would do all this for us, but we would consider that God had struck him down. Okay, I agree with what you said. And isn't that what we teach in all Christianity? God struck his son down at the cross? Yes. I guess what I'm saying is, that part is true, but the part that is different and where I think a lot of people get confused is that, you know, I agree that Christ had to display this total self-sacrificing love, and the only way he could do that is, is give himself up. And you don't have, at least I'm not seeing that analogy 
Well, I want to, I want to, he not only displayed self-sacrificing love, because if we say it like that only, people will get the idea we're talking that Christ only had to give revelation of God's love. He did display self-sacrificing love, but he achieved, he achieved within his own human nature, perfection of godly character and the destruction of the carnal nature. This was more than a revelation. This was an achievement. And you say, we don't see it in the Old Testament system. The only reason you don't see it in the Old Testament system is because we look at the Old Testament system through the lens of a forensic model. If you look at the Old Testament system through the lens of this model, it's all there. But the forensic model has so clouded our thinking about it. Ellen White says that the, the, that the, old, that the old Testament system, that the key to unlock its mysteries is the gospel. And what we do, and what the error we do traditionally in Christianity is we take the Old Testament, we study those systems, we derive our understanding of what it means, and then we project that onto Christ and make Christ fit into the Old Testament system. But the truth is, Christ is the lens which reveals the reality of his universe, and it is him we look at first, and then we are enlightened about the meaning of the Old Testament system. Does that make sense to everyone? And if we do that, you're going to find that the Old Testament fits, fits perfectly. Yeah. Well, we are out of time, guys. Uh, I had several other points I wanted to make about uh, foreknowledge and about uh, tradition in the church and so forth. But it's in the notes, so the notes will be up on the website very soon. Again, announcements. Next week we'll meet in this building, but we're going to meet in the courthouse next door. You have to come in through the main entrance next week. So right there in the courthouse. And um, I want to again thank Kathy Ritland, who helped get our um, our uh, shirts. And so those who weren't here last week and didn't get a shirt, um, if you'd like a shirt for our, our class, um, please come up and get one. And uh, let's close with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth about your nature, character, and kingdom as Jesus has revealed. Lord, our minds have got so many confusing and competing ideas because Satan is the father of lies. He's lied about you in heaven. He lied about you in Eden. He's lied about you through the history of this whole world. He, and our minds are confused, Lord. We ask for your spirit. Bring clarity. Help us discern the right from the wrong. Help us to be able to understand the written word and lead us back to the true knowledge of your character that we can, can be priests in your kingdom. Priests here on earth taking the, the true gospel message of your character to this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.